everybody. Welcome to episode 14 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina and now Baden-Württemberg in Southern Germany with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple and with me as always is SCG Mainstay and GPDC finalist Collins Mullen. How's it going, Collins? Pretty excellent. I'm glad to be back. Had a had a pretty great weekend uh, last weekend. Just kind of sitting on my couch, which was fun. <laughs> yeah, I had a ton of stuff to do, but I still watched all of Worlds instead of doing most of the stuff I was supposed to do. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like that's kind of happened sometimes. Yeah, I uh, I just kind of let myself relax and be entertained for a little bit, which is kind of like a fun difference because I'm normally traveling to tournaments and kind of on that grind myself but it's kind of cool to have like a weekend just to sit back relax and enjoy the show a little bit yeah and it was a pretty good show i think i i really enjoyed it i i don't know if it's because i i've spent a lot of time playing with these specific decks so watching them you know you you have that level of I'm not going to say that I know the decks inside and out or anything, but, you know, you, you appreciate it a little more when you spend a lot of time with those cards. Right, right, for sure. I had, like, just kind of gotten in the role of testing Standard myself, so I was very excited to see, you know, what, what everybody was doing uh, in Worlds, and I was a little surprised, I guess, at one point that so many of the pros settled on a deck that I had no idea even existed going into that weekend, which... <laughs> was a little jarring because I kind of like, you know, pride myself on being very, very up to date on th- things. And then all of a sudden in Worlds, everybody's playing blue-black control, which I just was like, wasn't even on my radar going into the weekend. Right, right. I mean, we've definitely treated blue-white as the de facto control deck to, to right, start right, like right. starting place in this format. But, you know, there have been plenty of Vraska's Contempt-based control decks. I, I guess Fatal Push and Vraska's Contempt are really the bottom of the pyramid in that deck that everything is built on. Yeah, and, you know, and kind of the one card that everybody was preaching for the weekend, which was Search for Escanta. Yep. Um, yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep giving myself a call dead on that one and, and feel good yeah. about it. You've got you've got quite a few call dits, actually, as of recently. You called Search for Escanta. As soon as it got spoiled, you were like, I think this card is great and goes well in control shells. And sure enough, like people are even trying to start like starting to try it in modern a little bit. Yep, it costs two mana. That's the correct mana cost in modern. Yeah, three or less, I guess, is yep. where you wanna be. <laughs> yeah, so Search for Escanta kind of like the big breakout card for the weekend and also our world champion Huey Jensen. I, I'm gonna take a 33 called percent called it on that one. That's all <laughs> that's all I can do. I, I, I'm not gonna take full okay. credit. I, I, yeah. I called Peach Garden Oath. I was pretty sure that one of those guys would at least make a good run. And they were all live for top four in the last round so I, I feel like that's a pretty pretty good called it. Well their their deck was great. Yeah, their their deck was definitely very very well tuned for the weekend. They they just had a plan for all three of the decks that showed up that weekend, right? They had an excellent plan yeah. for Mono Red because I think they're just like playing a deck that's inherently pretty solid against Mono Red, and they they had some good decks there. Additionally, they had a pretty good plan against the Mirror. They they had a pretty unique angle at going big, which. They did. Kind of, we hadn't seen as much earlier with the Torrential Gear Hulks in the sideboard, the Commit to Memories, and the Essence Scatters were all, I think, hedges towards the mirror. Where, you know, like big unanswerable cards in the mirror that we're talking about are 
the Scarab God and Bristling Hydra is always a big problem. So Essence Scatter, I think, really, really shined in, in their deck list. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and I think Essence Scatter looked really good all day, really in all of the matchups, whether it was catching Hazarettes or Scarab Gods or Bristling Hydras. Right. yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I, I think Essence Scatter is just kind of one of the best cards in standard right now if, if you're if it's going into this like mid-range four drop deck and being good then it's it's clearly got a strong place in the metagame although the world's metagame i i do want to like point out early and often the world's metagame is not the metagame yes yeah that is that's a good point that i i think that we should definitely iterate is that looking at like the three decks that came out of worlds that's not going to be what standard looks like from now on Worlds in general has a pretty good history of having some pretty inbred metagames. And from that, a lot of the deck lists look even different than what they will look like moving forward. Like if we look at William Jensen's 75 for Teamer Energy, playing a lot of things that have pretty heavy consideration on the three decks that he expected to face against, which was Control, The Mirror, and Mono Red. And I think that honestly, if you want to excel in the format beyond just that one weekend, you're going to have to adapt. And I think Standard has definitely done that. Right, right. Like you can't be putting Magmus Bray's main deck unless you're pretty sure about exactly what your plan is. In this this deck list, the clear plan was, okay, we're a dog to control game one, but we board well against them for for games two and three and so the deck is heavily biased to not lose games to mono red and then have a very strong matchup in in the the mid-range mirror and, and then the access to lots of instants out of the sideboard and torrential gearhulks to go over lets it have a plan that i think is is very unexpected and very powerful right for sure yeah so you know definitely kudos to peach garden oath for Kind of really nailing it on um, what they expected to see and creating a deck that gears well against that. Yeah, and I, I don't know how much communication there is from testing group to testing group. I, I wonder how confident someone who is in the know would have been going into the tournament that only three decks would have showed up. I, I wonder if they just knew going in, like, we're really not going to play anything except for these three decks. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there was definitely room for someone to break the mold. And, you know, if if somebody was, like, omniscient going into the weekend and said, all right, everybody else at this tournament is going to be playing these three decks, there's definitely room for kind of breaking the mold and playing some, you know, fourth deck that has a really good matchup against those three decks. So, Which I don't know what deck that is. Uh, I think I do, honestly, at this point. And I, it's it, we've seen a lot of it on Magic Online kind of like after the weekend, and that is the uh, Anointed Procession decks. Oh, right, right, right. That I mean, I put that in the show notes and that completely makes sense yeah. to me. Sure. Um, I've actually been playing a lot of that deck, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later, I think, in the podcast, but I think that deck is very, very good in the current meta. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that it's definitely a place where, where you can find a lot of an edge against decks like these specifically if the control decks are running black instead of white they don't have a lot of tools against the the go white yeah, token decks. that's actually a pretty important change is that the the token decks actually had a lot of problems against blue white control in particular i think that's probably your worst matchup because blue white control not only has access to subtle wreckage which kind of is really bad news for you 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 end up getting all the lands out of your deck but they don't really care and it's it's mostly it's like they have access to the sweepers that the black deck doesn't really have access to 
like the black deck is really really leaning on being able to one for one every turn you're like trading a resource for a resource and then you can kind of take over the game after that whereas like the token deck really is good against that plan but the the white version of control gets to run fumigates and some of the wreckages and then and then it even has cast out and 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 even forsake the worldly if they want it to kill your anointed processions. Which True. Is... Yeah, which is also a big problem. And then the card that I'm blanking on right now is their win condition, which is uh, approach. Oh yeah, approach just doesn't care how many creatures you have in play. Yeah, so. approach. If I'm playing this tokens deck and my opponent isn't dead next turn and taps out for an approach, I'm just like I'm gonna lose because um, they they have so many ways of digging into it. Right. Because because the token decks don't deal damage that quickly token decks don't don't put up the fastest clock in the world on it takes time to build up the board they're just very resilient against getting one for one and, and right. they have that level of inevitability but approach is a higher level of inevitability so definitely definitely moving forward i'm definitely very excited about the token decks, but we'll see we'll see how the metagame kind of like you know evolves around that a little bit um i think it was it would definitely have been crushing everything at worlds if it had showed up at worlds yeah that's probably true but it's it's a, that's a ballsy call to make at worlds like the tournament <laughs> that you need to nine yeah. and five to win 25 grand to to show up with a, a completely unproven token deck with a bunch of terrible cards in it yeah it, a lot of terrible cards we're talking um <laughs> we're talking uh yeah. sacred cats anointed procession stuff. hidden stockpile <laughs> sacred cats like like, the list of unplayable cards goes on. It's just that they're mostly kind of broken together. Right, right, for sure. I mean, I guess Anointed Procession is probably just a good card because you win very few games that your opponent resolves Anointed Procession in, so... Oh, yeah. The the deck feels pretty crazy because, like, if you resolve, like, two pieces, one of which is, like, an Anointed Procession, and the other piece can either be... I'm gonna have to pull up the deck list to take a look at it, but... Um... Right, right. Who knows the names of these cards? Yeah. So you can resolve an anointed procession as well as a hidden stockpile, and that takes right. the game pretty easily, kind of on its own. You just get chump blocks for days, and then you're generating more and more and more tokens every every time. Um, mm -hmm. Also, kind of the new addition to that deck has been Legion's Landing. Yeah, that's huge. Having having extra one drops that are good cards in your deck is a really big deal for the deck. Yeah. So Legion's Landing gives you a token. And, you know, with Anointed Procession, it gives you two tokens. Um, so mm -hmm. it kind of fits along that theme. And then if you attack with three or more creatures, it flips into a land that says three mana tap, create a 1-1 one, one, uh, vampire creature with to token with lifelink. And if you ever have an Anointed Procession, then you get two of them. If you have two Anointed Processions, you get four of them. And it just kind of gets <laughs> out more and more out of control from there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and and that is the one thing that, that gives it some resilience against, even if they do have Wraths, if you're at a point where you can just tap a land and put multiple guys into play, then, you know, maybe you can beat them. But the combination of Wraths, Enchantment, Removal, and the ability to just win the game no matter what the board looks like, I, I think makes those white decks the control deck that you want out of the format before really going hard on this deck. Yeah. So, uh, right, so if, 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 the, if the control decks continue to be black moving forward, then I'm very, very excited about this deck. If there are going to be a couple of white control decks floating around still, I'm less excited about this deck. However, I think that that's probably pretty unlikely, given that we just had Worlds and literally all of the control players at Worlds brought yes. blue-black. 
or some blue black variant. You know, there's also um, Shota's Grixis control deck. So, kind of for me personally, looking forward to this weekend, which is going to be Nationals. I am planning on playing a Anointed Procession deck. So great, uh, awesome! I'm for it. Looking, looking forward to that for sure. Probably we should talk about worlds. I I, I don't want to like make this whole podcast about Anointed Procession decks, uh, b- b- before we get to worlds. Yeah, but, I definitely. Yeah, agree. there is no. There is no like set build for those anointed procession decks yet, so so it'd be interesting to see what you come up with as as you, something you feel comfortable with. Uh, I mean, they've all got hidden stockpile and anointed procession, but you know some have Vraska. They have different numbers of like sacred cats versus other early game cards. So I've even seen ones uh, going back to Oketra's monument. So yeah, there, there's there's a whole world of terrible cards that you can put in this deck that are really sweet. So, so I'd definitely be interested to see what decklist you end up with. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm willing to talk about that later in the podcast, but I do want to get back to worlds a little bit yeah, here. Definitely, for sure. I think one of the one of the more interesting things that I saw was actually in limited. From my perspective of looking in on like watching these world class players draft, um, I always feel like I learn the most from watching these players draft, like watching Martin Usa draft, yeah. watching Huey Jensen draft, watching Owen Turtnall draft. I feel like they are, like, so far ahead of me personally in, like, draft skill that I my mind always gets blown when, I, when I'm when i watching the draft just because, like, I get to see kind of, like, a snapshot of what's going on in their mind and kind of, like, getting a better yeah. idea for what things I need to be thinking about and stuff like that. One of the drafters that I think underrated but insanely good at drafting in a kind of <laughs> unique way is actually Christian Calcano. Like, the first deck that he drafted at Worlds was, like, this uh, crazy, really low to the ground, it felt like almost a Boggles deck a little bit, where he's playing, like, these one and two dot creatures and then a bunch of pants. Yep. He had four swashbuckling in there. Yeah, that's crazy to me. I think that's four more swashbuckling than I've played in any deck in this format. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah, There has to have been at least one draft I've played where it was right to take a bunch of swashbucklings, so... Right, so, and it kind of, like reminds me of when I looked back at the Pro Tour, the first Pro Tour that I saw where people started playing the the 1-2 unblockable 1-drop. Um, mm-hmm. Slitherblade, I think it was called. Yeah. Well, that was uh, that was Calcano 2 going right. really hard that's, on the Slitherblade And that's deck. what I was going to say, is that Calcano, once again, kind of like found this strategy in draft that nobody else was looking at. Um, yeah. He kind of like was a, was able to lean on that and like utilize that strategy that kind of like was a little bit under the radar, um, even mm-hmm. like at a world's format and three of the first draft because he was able to just kind of like take this unique perspective on drafting, which I think yeah. that is something that I like have huge admiration for because you know I like personally I feel nowhere close to being able to pull something like that off and he just like does it consistently every every time a new set comes out so. Yeah, and I think that's such a huge skill that, you know, if you just always take, all right, the three mana removal spells are the best thing, and then I I want the creatures that everybody thinks are the good creatures. If your thinking about draft is pretty much the same as everybody who, like, listened to the past couple of episodes of Limited Resources and, you know, draft some online you're not getting an edge there. You're picking cards in the exact same way as everybody else, and you may be a little bit better at it than other people, and you may get some edge that way, and that's fine. 
But if you're not at least keeping, and I'm not saying that I'm particularly good at this because I'm I'm not brave enough to try these things most of the time. Uh, <laughs> but like this is an area of my game that I need to improve, which is looking out for these strategies that are not. You know, I'm gonna take the eight out of ten here, and I'm gonna take this because it, I, this card is stronger. That and it's the card that everybody thinks is stronger. There are edges to be gained uh, that are not just having the quote unquote correct evaluation of cards and picking accordingly. Right, definitely something that I agree with you with. On I need to kind of develop the balls that I should have to be able to try something out like that. Whereas currently yeah. I'm just gonna draft what I think to be good cards. You know what I mean? At least have the flexibility to try it out you know even on like in the testing platform of just like drafting at home on magic online just being able to be like Mm -hmm. you know okay let's try this out and let's see if if that's kind of like a unique approach that works you know what i mean yeah um i think like another strategy that exists in the current format that might be a little under the radar that i read about i think on a channel fireball article but nobody seemed to have been talking about lately is that like there was one guy who said I really like drafting blue-white control in this format. And what that looks like really? is a bunch of one-mana slashes in white to kind of, like, mm-hmm. curb the early aggression. A bunch of treasure blue cards that kind of, like, gives you some treasure and give you the ability to splash a bunch of colors. So you can play, like, the 1-4 for 3 that gives you a treasure, and you can play the draw 2 for 4 that gives you a treasure, and then... After you can do that and kind of like stall up the board a little bit, you can pretty much just splash whatever bombs are passed to you. I thought that was like a really interesting and unique way to draft that's not just kind of like the the nuts and bolts draft the good curve and the good cards that you see. And the tribes that are handed to you by wizards, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. If you If you identify that you're in an open seat for one of those archetypes then you're definitely incentivized to do that just because that's kind of like how the format's supposed to play out so like if you're in the merfolk seat and you're getting merfolk stuff past you you should definitely be you know doing that just, but right just there are a lot merfolk. of times yeah. where you're right you're there are a lot of times where you're in a seat that where you're you're kind of like struggling to figure out what exactly is going on everybody else is fighting for those tribes and you kind of have to be a little more flexible and willing to draft something unique that still yeah. has a, a powerful game plan um, for sure for so sure i guess that's just kind of like one of the takeaways that i got from worlds where you know I've, I've got a lot to improve on draft and i think that i'm identifying some of those areas which feels good you know trying to get better and everything so yeah and there's a lot of specifics about this draft format that i think we could get into but that may be kind of missing the forest for the trees a little bit. So I don't know if we want to have like a really in-depth draft episode maybe after Nationals once you've gotten in as much, all the practice that you're going to do. Maybe, oh, for maybe sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time to do that. Definitely. Mostly just going for some anecdotes on, um, yeah. you know, a few interesting draft things that I saw from Worlds. Yeah, yeah, and I think that specifically is something we should be talking about right now. Like the interesting stuff that did happen at Worlds. That one Huey game, and I mean, pretty much every time Huey was on camera, like something very silly happened, but that that one Huey game where the board just was 15 creatures on either side and finally got won by a couple of combats that were just complete blowouts after he had hostage-takered, what's it called? The guy that puts the plus one plus one counters on your team when it's enraged. Yeah, the 3-5 dinosaur. 
Yeah. Yeah, the 3 5. Uh, and he had hostage taker that, and he cast two fiery cannonades, and his guys just became enormous, and he completely got everything that he was going for that game. I, I think uh, shows one very specific part of this format that I've found, which is like have a plan to win the game. I, I've drafted some slower decks, some more controlling decks, and you need ways to deal that damage you can't just rely on a little bit of card advantage and some good removal and then win with some good creatures like you need to win with a 4-4 flyer or even put a mark of the vampire on a a 2-3 flyer or something like that and have that be the way you like close because you need a powerful way to finish the game or else you just get locked up most of the time unless you know you're racing yeah i I definitely so recently uh one of the things that i learned by watching huey specifically just play magic and I think that that game that you just mentioned was a pretty good example of that, where Huey just has insane patience when it comes to yes. using the cards and resources that are in his hand. Uh, the one thing that I do remember is that like Huey had a bunch of spots in that game where he like could have used a trick in his hand or a lightning strike in his hand to yeah. do something that could have potentially been like a little bit of a blowout, but he was just able to sculpt the game in such a way where... Um, he was patient, he was patient, he was patient, and then his opponent, like, went for a big attack that ended mm-hmm. horribly for his opponent just because he had so many tricks and so much mana to utilize those tricks. Yep. That was just, like, a, you know, a pretty big eye-opening thing where he just played that game so masterfully and, and like, and as you said... Like at the end of it, it just looked insane, and all of a sudden, Huey's all of Huey's creatures had three plus one plus one counters on them, and were gigantic, and he just like was crushing the board from there. And I think that you know, very very little other players would have been able to kind of sculpt that game that was looked pretty close into such of a blowout that Huey did, just kind of based on like the patience that he had with all of his his uh, cards. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was definitely that that patience was a huge key part of it, and it was patience with a plan. Oh yeah, like he sure. was definitely expecting at some point to have that is it bellowing Aegisaur, whatever it is. He was expecting to have that on his side of the board and be able to trigger it multiple times. However, he was doing it to to really mess up what his opponent thought was going to have in, happen in combat. And, and so having that general plan in his head, you know, he wasn't going to accept less than that. He wasn't going to spend combat tricks on on turns where they weren't leading directly to this, like, horrifying blowout. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, so so definitely props to Huey. And I think that I kind of saw a lot of examples that, of that over the course of the World's Weekend where he just demonstrated a lot of patience that paid off for him very, very well. Yeah. Yeah, and both standard and limited kind of lent themselves to these combat math and life total math heavy situations where like really understanding what's going to happen to your life total if you attack with these guys what is going to happen if you you know sit back and block really understanding the results of these decisions uh as with regards to combat that was really key to both of these formats, I think. Yeah, There's definitely. just lots of creatures of different sizes on both sides of the board and, and really understanding the combinations of blocks that could be made on either side. Um, that was important to navigating these games. And I think uh, just Huey was did it better than anybody else. Uh, and it was really impressive to watch. Yeah, and you know I think that's part of why he was just able to kind of destroy the field so nonchalantly yeah. over the course of the weekend it's just he's just playing top tier magic against the yeah. best players in the world even and just kind of demonstrating that he just he's just is that good 
yeah, that finals, Javier played extremely well. Like, he's a very good Magic player. He's virtually top-aided two Pro Tours. He's, <laughs> he's come in ninth twice. Right. And, uh, yeah, he's an excellent player. He played mono-red very well. Those games were super, super tight, and a misstep by either player would have, you know, ended the game against them very quickly. But, yeah, they, they were super well played. Yeah, definitely a lot of uh, high-skill magic going on over the course of the weekend. One of the bigger storylines over the course of the weekend as well was kind of what we already mentioned a little bit, but the Peach Garden of doing so well in the tournament. You know, all three players live for top four in the last round, which is kind of like an insane feat. Ridiculous. I was really, I was really crossing my fingers that they were going to be able to make it happen. But after Huey lost in the last round to Javier, I knew that Javier was going to take a, one of those slots away. So I'm, I was pretty sure at that point that if Reed won, he was going to get fifth on breakers. And I think, I'm, I believe that's what ended up happening. It, it's funny being in Huey's spot there. Because, obviously, I mean, it's world, so it's not dream-crushing. Like, you're playing for a pro point anyways, and, and nobody's IDing or whatever. But, like, the thoughts in his head are, obviously, he badly wants Reed and Owens, his best friends, to get into the top four. But they also, like, absolutely represent the best chance in the room of beating him in the top four because they right. know yeah. his deck inside and out and how they're playing a 74-card mirror. Yeah, that, that would have been interesting to see. I, I mean, I, I believe that they did play some mirrors over the course of the weekend, but that, that would have been definitely a very exciting, you know, top four. Um, yeah. Whereas in my seat going into top four, I felt like Huey was such a huge favorite just because I think his deck was well positioned against both blue-black and the mono-red deck. But yeah, yeah, I think that the mirrors were probably going to be the hardest for him to overcome. Uh, especially the mirrors of the same 75, essentially. So Yeah, well, and I think, you know, like, Reed had a slight advantage. Be, I mean, just because of the extra uh, confiscation queue is a really big deal in that matchup, so... Although, you know, it, it's better against the builds with Scarab God in it, but it's still an important card if you're both running, like, four, three or four glory bringers. Right, yeah, for sure. I uh, I think the Essence Scatters are, were pretty much MVP over the course of that weekend. Um, yeah, yeah. For that, him. that card is no huge. matter what no matter what matchup he was playing in so this is pretty good yeah and pretty good call there and, and i mean look at these deck lists like a huge weakness of teamer is that no matter how well you're doing often a resolved hazaret can just crush you. you you chump block a few times you don't manage to deal lethal and then it just finishes you off but between essence scatters commit to memory and confiscation cues they all have four to five main deck answers to hazaret and, and and even one or two more out of the sideboard. So they're not incredible answers a lot of the time, but it's enough that if you understand the matchup, then you can use them. Most of the cards in Monored are not that scary to the deck, and so if you shoehorn in some answers to Hazaret, then I think that makes the matchup that much better. Yeah, I definitely think that Hazaret was a big consideration when they decided to put Commit and Essence Scatter and Confiscation Coup in the main deck. Particularly yeah. Confiscation Coup, which is a card that I'm fairly confident was just pretty great in all non-control matches. Yeah. A teamer player boarding in Confiscation Coup against Mono Red is something that I saw very frequently kind of before this weekend. So right. I think that they were able to identify that and just kind of be like, I, I just really, really <laughs> want this card in my deck. So let's put one in the main. Yep, yep. This is a very stupid story. Uh, because it relies entirely on my opponent's very silly behavior. But okay. playing on Magic Online, uh, last format, I was playing mono-red. Or I was playing teamer. My opponent was playing mono-red. And I 
drew two confiscation coups, so I confiscation cooed his carries of, and then nice. he, he complained about that, and then he played a hazard, and I confiscation cooed that as well, and then he he had a lot of things to say about how lucky I was and whether or not I should have been boarding in confiscation cues, but I think it's often correct in that match oh i think it's 100 so, correct in against yeah. as teamer against mono red because you just have no other answers to resolve hazard you, you just have to be able to answer that card unless you're in a very good racing position and i feel like if you're yeah. in a very good racing position you're going to win those games any either way so yeah your, your whole deck lines up pretty well against their other 56 cards so it's definitely worth the slots to make it line up reasonably well against those four incredibly brutal cards right Definitely. So, you know, a couple pieces of weirdness that are definitely an artifact of the 24-man field. The decks, the control decks were all blue-black. Zero white cards were registered in the entire tournament in the standard portion. Pretty crazy, honestly. Really crazy. I guess, you know, when there's no Gideon in the format, I mean, there's a Gideon, but when there's no uh, four-mana Gideon in the format, the incentive to play white... (laughs) Uh, definitely yeah definitely went down decreases for sure also no hostage takers zero hostage takers out of 24 decks yeah i think those are definitely a lot of like very surprising pieces from the weekend the the we were just kind of preaching hostage taker last weekend yeah uh and i was pretty confident that that card was just going to make a pretty big impact because as it stood the format had looked kind of like a, a mid-rangey mess of hostage taker mirrors at least for a little bit but then worlds yeah. like every single player that went to worlds made the decision that they were going to try to play to beat that card instead of play that card which is a, a pretty unique experience i think that came out of this the decision making process from all players leading to that similar conclusion yeah and honestly like it's probably also partially part of deck choice like, Hostage Taker is pretty bad out of blue-black control, because then it becomes your only target for the removal that they left in. Yeah, definitely um, not a control card, I don't think. And and it doesn't really fit into Teamer, because once you're warping your mana base enough to accommodate Hostage Taker in addition to Scarab God, like, I don't think you can get by. If you're boarding in multiple Hostage Takers and you've got Scarab Gods, I don't think you can get by on one Swamp and Ether Hubs and a Tune with Ether. I, I think you probably... Or, and I guess they run a couple of green-black duels, but I think either you're going to find yourself drawing hostage takers that you have a hard time casting, or you're going to have to change your mana base a a little bit more, and then that makes you that much worse against mono-red. So the fact that nobody was playing decks that hostage taker kind of naturally fits into, you know, that's a big part of the no hostage takers showing up. Right, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, it was just kind of like a, a weird happenstance where they all kind of... Everybody knew that Hostage Taker was very, very powerful, but for some reason, all the decks that people had decided to stick with, people just didn't feel like Hostage Taker fit that well. So, yeah. you know, maybe moving forward, there's going to be another a new deck that kind of like has all these decks in mind that wants mm-hmm. to play Hostage Taker, but I don't know, we'll kind of see what the, the future of that card looks like. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's not like Hostage Taker is... I mean, Hostage Taker is bad against blue-black control, but it's a pretty good card against Teamer and a pretty good card against Mono Red. So it's not like it would have been out of place in this metagame. Right, right, right. Uh, It just so happened that all the decks that people decided to play didn't really fit well in. I mean, the Teamer decks 
in this tournament have like a slightly higher number of glory bringers in the main deck than I think you know people have been cutting down on on glory bringers for other expensive cards especially for scarab god um and since over half of the teamer decks in this tournament didn't have scarab gods they had a lot of glory bringers and i think that does make hostage taker a lot worse if you're seeing a ton of glory bringers yeah and probably what we saw there was the world's players putting in those glory bringers as an answer to hostage taker interestingly right right because scarab god is not good against hostage taker but glory bringer glory bringer is pretty strong Right, right, right. Yeah, Scarab God definitely gets kind of eaten by Hostage Taker pretty, pretty well. And then kind of the, the other end of that spectrum, though, is if your opponent has Hostage Takers in the graveyard, they're a very, very good target Oof. for Scarab God activations. Yeah, um, it's true. But normally, I think that play pattern definitely looks like Hostage Taker coming out on top with somebody tapping out for a Scarab God and then it just kind of getting eaten immediately by Hostage Taker. Right. Well, so I, I guess, I mean, we, we talk about a lot of the token deck but this is probably a good time to start talking about it because it does kind of prey on all three of these decks. Yeah, I guess I can I can definitely talk about that for a minute. It's kind of what I've been spending the last week on testing is... So I'm going to Nationals this weekend. So the two formats that I've been really preparing for have been Limited and Standard to prepare for that. Um, and it's funny because... So Nationals this weekend is the exact same format as Worlds. So Worlds was a definitely a very good tournament for me to watch. It's going to be flipped a little bit because the first couple of rounds in Nationals is going to be standard, and then at the end of the day, we're going to be drafting. I think that they did that because some of the players are going to be having buys, and it would be very strange to have buys in a draft. Oh, in a draft, yeah. So it makes sense to me, I think, in, in hindsight. Yeah, so uh, leaving draft aside a little bit, the, the one thing that I like to do a lot in pretty evolved standard metagames is, you know, try to come up with a unique angle that I think works well and kind of preys upon all of the other decks in the format. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that allows me to do that is that because we live in such an information age where all the decks are pretty well known pretty quickly, so you kind of like get to see all the pieces of the puzzle. So I started looking at the Anointed Procession decks that have been doing well, particularly the... There were a lot of Anointed Procession decks in the standard PTQ that happened. Yeah, there were a lot. Kind of the weekend, or like a couple days after Worlds even, I think. Um, I'm not it sure. Was, it was during Worlds, I, I it, think. It might have been during Worlds, yeah. After all of the Worlds decks had been kind of publicized and well-known. So there was a 9-0 list from that PTQ played by HodgePodge98. And it was essentially this Anointed Procession deck that plays... Kind of like the the stock anointed procession package of you know anointed procession stockpiles sacred cats anointed priests fumigates all that stuff but it's actually an esper deck so it's not playing green for uh vraska like a lot of the other decks have been playing um, yeah it's, is this the one that was playing all the jaces no this is actually the one that's okay. playing two scarab gods four champion oh Blitz. right and okay. three legion landings so i it it feels like this deck just kind of gets to play like the best cards and still have this own note procession package you're playing champion of Wits, which i think is just a very very good card playing scarab gods which allow you to take over the game in a lot of matchups and the the fact that scarab god is in your deck it actually gives you some good outs to one of the things that this deck can fold to a little bit which is an opposing scarab god um, I think sure. that the Abzan version of this list kind of crumbles a little bit to your opponent casting a Scarab God. 
so if you kind of had your own Scarab God to be able to kind of like fight that battle a little bit, your Scarab Gods are just way better than your opponent's Scarab Gods if you have an anointed procession. Because you just get double the fun there. <laughs> Which yes. has been a pretty yes. pretty interesting combination that I run into there. If you thought, um, if you ever thought Scarab God just wasn't quite enough. Right, yeah, then, you know, how about how about Scarab Godding back a champion of wits with two anointed processions in play and refusing <laughs> to draw most of those cards just because you don't want to tech right, yourself. You will deck yourself. Right. Yeah, for the, for those who has, haven't played with any anointed processions or kind of seen that in action, it gets out of hand really, really quickly. Right, because it doubles and then doubles, which means right. if you've got two anointed processions out and you bring back an anointed priest, you then get... you bring back four anointed priests and you gain 16 life. Yes, and then every token that enters play gains you, or every token that would be created also gains you 16 life because four of those right. things are then <laughs> created, it's four. triggering your four <laughs> anointed priests. Yeah, it's it's dumb, and this is why you need a playset. I think a playset of rampaging ferocidons in the sideboard of your mono red deck. Or honestly, if this deck gets popular enough, that that card probably needs to see play in the sideboard of Teamer as well. Because I'll tell you yeah. what, this anointed procession deck just crushes Teamer, and kind of the best thing that I've seen them do against me has been play the the three mana dinosaur that eats stuff out of the graveyard scavenger death gorge scavenger death gorge scavenger yeah yeah i've always been pretty terrified of teamer coming out with the that red three drop dinosaur um yeah, because that, that card is definitely a beating against against this deck in particular yeah and instead of gaining life you lose life every time you have a token come into play that that'll kill you real fast Right. So, and then looking at the 9-0 deck list, he had three treasure maps in the main deck, and I think that that was just mm -hmm. kind of a way to, you know, hit your land drops and make sure that you can, like, cast your five drops and everything. And, you know, sometimes you can get out of control with, say you've got some anointed processions in play, and then you flip your treasure map, and then you get a bunch of, you know, exponentially more treasure tokens. But that honestly just felt a little more win more to me. And I ended up cutting those for Search for Ascantas. Oh, okay. As another, like, two-mana enchantment that uh, makes sure you hit your land drops, eventually flips into a land itself. Yep. And your threats are non-creature spells. Yeah, and all of the all the enchantments, like your hidden stockpiles, legion landings, and anoint processions, and, you know, even the other cards that you're playing in here, like Fumigate, they're all non-creatures. So the Ascanta itself, the Ascanta the Sunken Ruin, finds a lot of pretty heavy hitters in your deck. Yeah. I think I found that one of the best ways of winning the mirror is actually flipping an Ascanta, digging pretty aggressively for anointed processions, hidden stockpiles, just so that you're making more and more tokens than your opponent every time. And if you're able to do that, then it takes forever, but you, you can eventually kind of grind out your opponent with a bunch of attacks. <laughs> yeah, those, um, those mirrors are pretty gross. I did, I have broken Magic Online in the past day <laughs> or two because I was playing one of those mirrors and we both had 600 life and kind of broke the object count that Magic Online knows how to handle. Good, great, <laughs> perfect. Good job, Moto. Hooray for Moto. Yeah, yeah. We we both had infinite life. It felt like and a bunch of anointed processions. And he had lost legacy to weigh my scarab gods, so I didn't have like that edge to to hang on anymore. We were just both mm. making infinite tokens every time. Right. Moto ended up crashing, restarting the game, playing through the game like three more times. That each took like five minutes, and then restarting the game. So we started from the beginning. We ended up <laughs> yes, grinding it out perfect. to a similar spot, essentially, 
where, you know, we, we both had like 300 life or something. And like, I knew kind of like from the beginning of this match that it was probably going to come down to time. So I was very time conscious mm. the whole time and ended up getting ahead on my opponent by like a minute. And I think that through that like time crunch, I was able to win the match just by putting myself in a position where I could right click attack with all creatures and he was forced into making blocks that because he yes. would have like died otherwise. <laughs> the worst part of the implementation of large numbers of creatures on Moto is that if you get in a position where you can attack, you can click once and then your opponent has to click dozens of times to block. Oh, not dozens. We're talking hundreds in this Hundreds, we okay. so many tokens on the board. Because we both had legions landing that were activating every turn and making eight tokens apiece, and we both had hidden stockpiles that were making eight tokens apiece. And, like, I put myself in a position where I attacked with everything, and he was like, uh, I'm at 612 life, whatever, I'll take it. And then he went down to 12. And I was like, oh my god, I'm so close. And so then, like, he gained, like, 200 life the next turn, and then I untapped and I attacked with everything again. And he, he made a bunch of more dudes on my turn with his Legion landing. Gained another, like, 200 life or whatever it was. But he only had, like, 30, like, 45 seconds left on the clock or something. So he, like, yeah. blocked one thing, realized he just wasn't going to have enough time for it, and then, like, took the rest of it, just, like, praying that it wasn't lethal. But, it, it, like, I got <laughs> lethal by, like, 40 damage or something. It was very entertaining and very ridiculous. So those mirrors come down... I mean, that ridiculousness is entirely a result of anointed procession. Yes. So yeah. that means that if the if the format ends up in a place where anointed procession is a main thing that's happening, you know, you just want, in your anointed procession deck, you want access to plenty of enchantment removal out of the sideboard. So fragmentizes have been good in the past for me. I've boarded them into monument decks against uh, anointed procession decks because without the anointed procession the deck is a lot more anemic so as long as you have more anointed processions in play than your opponent you're probably going to win that that game yes it is definitely all about the anointed procession my sideboard currently has three cast outs and four negates yep. and two duresses yep um and those are fine. all those are all pretty good in the mirror and yeah the name of the game is pretty much always just going to be anointed procession making sure that that doesn't happen and, and your opponent doesn't kind of get out of control there Yep, and if you can both get completely out of control, then just be ahead on time, I guess. Yeah, right. I, like, I don't really have a better recommendation other than be ahead on time, because yikes. It's it's a lot to yeah. handle. Well, and imagine trying to represent that and count that in real life. Like, that sounds terrible, too. So I'm, I'm pretty locked in on playing this deck this weekend, and I'm pretty worried about that, I'm not going to lie. I completely understand. You know, I'm going to have to be able to... Like, have some shortcuts for all the math that I'm going to have to do with the Anointed Processions and the Anointed Priests and the Hidden Stockpiles and all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's it's always multiples of two, really. So, like, like it's the same numbers a lot of times. So, it, you know, you've played a bunch with it. You probably have those numbers pretty much in your head. Well, the problem is I've been playing on Moto, and Moto just does a lot for it's me. It's doing so. the work for you. Yeah. <laughs> I've never, I've, I like, you know, so I've, I've played it in two leagues, and I'm, like, two matches into my last, my current league. So, like, not, not a lot, all things considered, but so far in all those matches, I have yet to have a position come up where I've, like, had to do, like, accurate math with that stuff. Like, I've gotten, I've gotten kind of close with, like, there's, like, a, a team or opponent who was kind of beating me down a lot, and I was, like, you, but I, I, like, never had to get into the position where, like, okay, so I'm gaining... 
32 life here, so I think that that'll be fine, or, you know, something like that. I'm, it's, it's always just been, like, I'm getting a bunch of life, and my opponent only has, like, 30 power on the board, so <laughs> probably fine. Yeah, so we'll be fine. Right. I'm also going to get X chump blockers, so we'll just, you know, we'll we'll have educated information when, when it comes to chump blocking right. and seeing when we need to chump block, but... The only things dealing you damage are glory bringers and thopter tokens, anyways. So, right, exactly. And one of the other cards in this deck is actually start to finish, which I've been pretty impressed with. It's an aftermath card. It's like an aftermath removal spell, effectively. Start says create two, uh, one one white soldier creatures with vigilance, and finishes aftermath sack a creature, destroy a creature, and it's been very effective at like you know answering those like few problem permanent permanents that have. Such as the raptor that says I can't gain life, or a glory bringer that's beating me down when I don't have an anointed priest, or something like that. Yeah, it fills a good spot, because you don't have room for removal, really. You can fit a couple of fatal pushes in there, I think, is what's in most of them. But between anointed processions and token generators, you're using up most of your spell slots on your active plan right and start is kind of like a two for one there because it you know it 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 is a token enabler so like if you you, if you're curving like hidden stockpile into a start then you're gonna have things to sacrifice and kind of get your engine rolling the next turn so it's kind of like a removal spell that also gives you tokens um which is that's that's exactly what it is really right yeah (laughs) pretty good pretty good spot to be with this deck for sure it's definitely great it's definitely a key yeah key kind of discovery for that deck i think one of the cards i've been testing out in the sideboard has been regal caracol uh which Mm -hmm. if you followed any of my magic history you know that i really love this card it's an important card to your magic success for sure and just kind of like one of the experiences that i had recently with this deck was have two annoyed processions in play reanimate a regal caracol with scarab god to create oh my God. maybe maybe a hundred power. I'm not sure. <laughs> Very ridiculous. Right. And in real life, I think you just ask your opponent if they scoop the <laughs> to put the tokens yeah. in play. Do you want me to do the math or are you dead? You're playing teamer, so Right. Yep, that's pretty pretty bonkers. Yeah. So I've been having a lot of fun with this deck. Pretty excited to play it this weekend. Just, you know, probably going to be coming down to a, a couple of tuning a little bit here and there. I think that's where I'm at at the moment. Cool. I, I think that's a great spot to be in. I think you may see more approach than we've been seeing. Certainly more than we saw at, at Worlds, but probably more than has really been on Magic Online uh, since it's paper and, and people move a little bit more slowly in, in paper. That that might be something you run into, but it's, it's still just one deck. And, and I think a lot of the people who would have run that are going to be copying world's deck lists and, and running blue black control instead. Right, right, right. Um, I, I'm pretty confident that the blue black control deck is going to take over in paper. I think that, mm-hmm. I think that you're right. Paper is a little bit behind magic online, but I think that magic online is actually moving into a position where people are kind of starting to recognize these token decks and adapting to that. And so I'm hoping mm-hmm. that because the paper magic is going to be a little behind that, then we'll still be in the era where that token deck is very good. Is so. crushing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you may be right. And I probably, I, I probably would also, if I got to play in Nationals, I, I would probably be playing this deck as well. Uh, I'm excited, but I think that's, you know, I could talk a lot about this deck, but I think that that's probably what we got time for today. And, you know, definitely willing to talk more about it this coming weekend, or after this weekend, if things go well. 
For sure. I have seen some lists. The the one blue list that I mentioned when you just when when you mentioned that you were Esper, there was one five O list that had four Jace the four new Jace in it, which I think is really sweet with I mean with anointed procession, you know, he makes two tokens, or if he ever ultimates, then that's really cool. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like that might be a little bit win more because yeah, you know, if you've got the anointed processions in play, then you don't really need that kind of effect and i think that he's just so hard to protect on his own that i i'm not really a fan but i don't know i I still don't really know exactly how good he is as a card against specific decks but you know if if the format is for example enough control decks that that is the direction that that makes a lot of sense then you know he may be a good choice depending on how that shakes out right yeah something something to not forget about for sure so we spent a lot of time talking about worlds and standard, but we did kind of cliffhanger your current modern deck uh, last episode, so I think we shouldn't not talk about it. Oh yeah, <laughs> kind of my kind of my pet deck for for the past couple of weeks. For those unaware, I've been playing a pretty sweet modern deck a lot lately, and that deck is Amulet Titan. Okay, so Primeval Titan, a. Uh, kind of the the secret to your modern success still i'm i'm hoping it is uh that deck so a little bit of history on that deck it was popularized way back when when summer bloom was legal summer bloom was a card that said it was like two mana sorcery it said you can play three additional lands this turn and the combination of summer bloom and amulet of vigor which was this kind of weird artifact for one mana that said whenever a permanent comes into play tapped under your control, untap it. And Karoo lands, which are lands that tap for two mana, but they come into play tapped, and when they come into play, they say you have to return a land from your from your battlefield to your hand. Given all those synergies, you could play a amulet on turn one, and then on turn two, you would play a green double land, a Karoo, that comes into play tapped, amulet says it untaps, so you stack your bounce a land and your amulet triggers such that you untap before you bounce something. You then tap your Karoo for two mana and bounce the Karoo itself, and then you cast your Summer Bloom, and then you play, and then you do that process three more times to create six mana. Huh, what can you cast with six mana, Collins? Oh, there's this really sweet one called uh, Primeval Titan, which uh, okay. allows you to search your library for two more bounce Karoo lands and give you even more <laughs> mana. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like on turn two, this deck explodes into what effectively became a hasty Primeval Titan that came into play, gave you some lands, and it played some lands in particular that allowed it to attack on turn one if you had an amulet. So you could get Slayer's Stronghold, which says pay a red and a white and tap this land to give a creature plus two plus zero vigilance and haste. And then so you could search for that land and a Boros Garrison, which is the red-white Karoo. Which is Um, terrible in the deck to draw. But it's only in there because it does this. It's the only land that does this specific thing, which is power, power Slayer Stronghold. Right, power the Slayer Stronghold. So, so right. So you would you would cast your Primeval Titan. You would find your Boros Garrison and your Slayer Stronghold. You would give your Primeval Titan plus two plus zero in haste. You would attack your opponent. 
you would then find a couple of packages from that point. And, and that's where the deck gets complicated, if you haven't thought it's complicated already. <laughs> um, you can, if you've got two Amulet of Vigors after attacking with your Primeval Titan, you can get Sun Home, which is a land that has... It's, it's essentially four mana, give a creature double strike, and you generate that four mana by finding another Karu with your other land with the primeval titan because the the right because that's the crazy thing about amulet is that the multiple amulets stack you get multiple triggers from your land right so you can you can tap that land a couple of times before it has to bounce itself or something else the this deck was was very powerful back in the day and it ended up getting the card summer bloom banned and that is actually a uh kind of contentious ban still because a lot of, and probably it should be banned because what it allows you to do is not something that, you know, Wizards wants you to be doing in Modern. Like, the sure, fact that right, right. it's a fine combo deck that also sometimes just wins the game on turn two, not great for the format. But one of the key things that went into the banning was its success at the hands of a player who also ended up getting banned for palming opening hands that were very often turn two kills. Right, so I, I, I do want to talk about that a little bit as well. Steven Speck was the first player to popularize this deck because he top aided two Grand Prix in a row playing Amulet Titan and kind of playing this like weird build that a lot of people were questioning. And the one key thing that he played was a one of Simeon Spirit Guide. <laughs> And nobody could figure out why he had one Simeon Spirit Guide in the deck. And I actually knew Steven Speck a little bit. We ran into each other. Like, I, I think I, I ran into him at a Grand Prix. And then, like, I went to his local store somewhere up north or something. So we kind of, like, I, I recognized him and I, and I asked him, why do you have one Simeon Spirit Guide in your deck? That seems so strange. And he was like, it enables the turn one kill of turn one. Um, Exile Spirit Guide, play Amulet, play Karu, play Summer Bloom, play Primeval Titan, kill you. Yep. And you only need one if... Right. But, so, like, it didn't make any sense to me. Like, you're playing one to, like, on the off chance, have this card in your opening hand, and and have the perfect other opening hand of uh, Amulet, Karu, Green, uh, Summer Bloom, Primeval Titan. Yep. <laughs> you know, it, it just seems pretty far-fetched to me. Turns out he was palming seven <laughs> and kind of stacking that dream opener. And I guess you have to register one Simeon Spirit Guide if you're planning on having it in your opening hand every game. Uh, yep. So he was just but kind that's of... All, that's all you need. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great Simeon... Like, I'd run one Simeon Spirit Guide in almost every deck if I could just always have it in my opening hand. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so that kind of, like, answered that question. Um, and then people kind of like tinkered more with the list. I think Saving Spirit, the one of Saving Spirit Guide was something that just kind of stuck a little bit. Um, <laughs> all the other players that picked up this deck, I think I'm pretty sure played one Saving Spirit Guide just because, I guess, why not? I'm not sure really. Two other players that ended up really adopting and evolving this list a little bit were Sam Black and Justin Cohen. And they actually took this to the Pro Tour. Because the deck itself was was very, very strong, and they, they kind of dominated that modern Pro Tour. Um, I think Justin Cohen lost in the finals mm-hmm. to a Splinter Twin deck. I also think that Sam Black and Justin Cohen played a win and in to the top eight of that Pro Tour, playing the same deck. Oh, okay. 
So deck definitely had a lot of legs. And then kind of like a continuation of that is that eventually it got banned because it was just a little too powerful for what Wizards wanted to do. So they ended up banning Summerbloom. For a little bit, the deck kind of went away. Nobody was really playing it. People assumed that the deck was dead because Summerbloom was the best enabler. But then I started seeing more and more people playing the same Amulet of Vigor Primeval Titan deck, but instead of the four Summerblooms, they put in Sakura Tribe Scouts, Explores, and Azusa. Azusa being a three mana creature that says you can play two additional lands on your turn. So kind of like a, a little bit of an underpowered Summerbloom. Yeah, just a little worse in every way, but... A little worse in every way, right. But kind of a benefit of it is that you can actually... Summoner's Pact for Azusa. Um, mm -hmm. So even the old version played like one or two Azusas to be able to Summoner's Pact for. Because one of the other keys to this deck is actually Teleria West. Teleria West allows you to search your library for pretty much any of the pieces that you want, which is a pretty unique thing to have happen. In a, in a modern deck, it's Teleria West is almost like a Demonic Tutor because you can Teleria West for a Summoner's Pact to find either Primeval Titan or Azusa, depending on what you need at the moment. Your Primeval Titans can search for a Simic Growth Chamber, which is the green-blue Karoo, and a Teleria West to then put that Teleria West back in your hand and find another Primeval Titan. So in this deck, mm -hmm. your Primeval Titans actually can chain into each other if you have enough mana, which is you're going to get out, out of all these Primeval Titans. Yeah, and this is this is one of those kinds of decks that I, I have played against it. I, I know more about it now than I did the first several times I played against it. Mm -hmm. I still don't know all the tricks, yeah. but it's one of those decks where, you know, you pass the turn and you think you know what your opponent is capable of doing, but then it turns out that their cards are just able to do something that you had no idea that their cards were able to do. Right, yeah. So kind of the biggest reason why I decided to adopt this deck is that a couple friends of mine had been playing it to a lot of success recently, even without the Summer Blooms, and kind of preaching it a little bit and saying that the deck was still really, really good and people weren't ready for it. Daryl Ayers and Bobby Fortinelli were, are players that have been playing a lot with this deck recently. Oh, cool. And right, so I picked it up and... I have to say that this is probably the hardest deck and most impossible deck that I've <laughs> ever played in Magic. I believe you. Um, because, like, you know, I've been playing this deck for maybe three weeks now on, on Magic Online, and it feels like every game I run across scenarios where I'm like, I have no idea what to do. Because I'm, I'm pretty confident that my deck has the capability to put myself in a very dominating position from this one spot. But mm -hmm. I, I'm just, I, I have no idea how to get there because the math on the land count and the, the mana count is still hard to me. You know, I still have yet to like really solidify any like good shortcuts that I can still lean on. And yeah, you still have to count up like, okay, I'll play this right. land that'll yeah. give me two. And then, yeah, yeah, that's tough. Like knowing when to get some of your kind of like bullet lands is also really hard. Like you run a one of a couple of these different lands. You run a Bajuka Bog, a Cavern of Souls, a Conley Garden, a Radiant Fountain, and then the Slayer Stronghold and the Sun Home. And like knowing the spots where you need to like find those is very important because sometimes you need to prevent yourself from dying. So you get a Radiant Fountain or a Conley Garden. Sometimes you need to find another Primeval Titan, so you need to, to find a Teleria West. 
And there's just so many options. Yeah, you just have infinite options all the time, which is great. You know, I love having options, but also you gotta very, pick very the difficult. right one. You you've got a, a ghost quarter in the sideboard. Some people have been playing Mortuary Mire, which is black land that when it comes to play, you can put a creature from your graveyard on top of your library for like the more grindy matchups, like run a lot of counter spells and something like that. Gotcha. Yeah, where you just need as many primeval titans in your deck as you can possibly run. Right. Exactly. So yeah, it's. They're, they're just infinite lines, and kind of like one of the easy buttons that I've actually found is I run a one-up walking ballista that you can find with Teleria West. Yeah, with Teleria West. Sometimes that just, you know, you play your Primeval Titan, and then you pick up a Teleria West, and then you search for a walking ballista, and then you can just play it for, like, six the next turn or whatever. And that often, like, particularly in the creature matchups, just takes over the game on its own, and then that's kind of like the... All right, we don't really have to do all this primeval titan math anymore. We're just gonna we're just gonna kill you with this walking ballista. Yeah, and you don't have to like risk the the path of exile after going all in on it or anything like that. Another one of the easy buttons is actually uh, out of the sideboard in a lot of the creature matchups, which is Hornet Queen. Hmm. You get packed for your Hornet cool. Queen after you make a bunch of mana, and then you know you just have five Death Touch flyers that brick wall whatever your opponent's trying to do. It plays Rorkthar in the sideboard for some combo matchups like Storm. <laughs> cool, cool. The yeah. six mana Storm hate card. Right. Yeah, I'm in. So, so essentially, uh, the reason I'm playing this deck now is because I'm kind of looking down the line. I'm looking at Pro Tour Spain. I, I'm looking at this deck and I'm saying, if I can get good enough at this deck to feel comfortable playing it at the Pro Tour, that's really where I want to be because I think that this deck has such potential and the kind of the ceiling of playing this deck is so much higher than any of the other modern decks where yeah. like if i start now and i start really really understanding this deck then i think that that'll really really pay off down the line in modern if i can kind of like become a i don't i wouldn't want to say expert or anything but just like very very comfortable with this deck and be yeah. able to like play it in a in a modern metagame bonus how many sideboard slots are people dedicating to amulet combo? So right, right. So like the one card that I'm always afraid of is Blood Moon. Um, Blood Moon sure. essentially kind of shuts down this deck entirely. But so that will have to be something I keep an eye on. Is that like you know, come Pro Tour season, is Blood Moon running around a lot, or is that something I'm going to be seeing a lot of? And if that's the case, I'm going to have to make some decisions. But Aside from that one card being popular, I'm pretty comfortable playing this. Because I think that it has access to so many tools where I could tune it to be able to combat pretty much whatever sure. it's going to be. One of the big draws to this deck is the fact that you have some really fast draws where you're killing your opponent on turn three. If you draw like Amulet and Azusa or something like that. Um, mm. Or like double amulet, so your opponent just dies immediately. Or so it has the capability of like racing the fast decks. Like if I'm playing in Storm, I can race and go as fast as I can. And you you still also have disruption like Bajuka Bog and stuff like that. And then it also has the capability of out grinding pretty much any of the grindy decks. Like you know if I can ever resolve a Primeval Titan, find another Primeval Titan that's gonna eventually play another Primeval, you know, uh, if I can get that chain going, or resolve one of, like, the bullets in the sideboard, like a Chameleon Colossus, or a Thragtusk, or a Hornet Queen, or something like that, you know, you, you have also a lot of grindy potential as well, so I, I think that there are a lot of angles that this deck can take, so I, I really want to be able to learn it as well as I can. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that sounds 
that sounds like a fine plan to me. Right. But, you know, in terms of actually learning this deck, wow, it's impossible. Um, <laughs> it's There's just infinite lines all the time. Being, like, I, I was playing a little bit with Daryl, and I was looking at the board, and I was like, um, I'm not really sure what the line is here. I think that I could probably end up casting a Titan. And Daryl's just like, oh, well, no, your opponent's just dead here, because you can cast the Titan, do this, do that, you know, <laughs> activate your stronghold twice this turn, and then deal your opponent 20 damage. And I'm like, what? <laughs> How? <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems like a fine way to learn. If, if you can find people who have a lot of experience with the deck, that is the best way to get those lines that you'd never notice. Right, yeah. Definitely, definitely, I'm lucky to have those resources, for sure. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting learning curve, but I'm, I'm very excited about this deck. Cool, great. Well, I think probably the plan should be then to just keep checking in with you about your progress and things you've learned and and what what stuff you're doing specifically uh as that testing goes on i know you're kind of in the relatively early stages now since the dive into this deck is very very deep yeah the dive is very deep and i've been playing a lot of standard recently because of the nationals this weekend which i'm preparing for and i'm also been having to jam a bunch of drafts having to jam a bunch of drafts getting to jam a bunch of drafts uh-huh. there we go okay uh yeah you're right uh, i'm actually going to uh i guess one kind of like a little side note that i want to talk a little bit about is that i because i test so much on magic online sometimes i i'm testing i'm testing i'm testing all week and then i show up at a tournament somewhere in the united states and and then i get the cards together and i shuffle them all up and I realize that it's the first time that I've played with these cards in paper. Yeah, and it's a su- it's a surprising challenge. Which is, you know, you could just be like, oh, it's the same, it's fine, you know. And in terms of, like, you know, tactics and everything, it definitely is the same. But I think that there are a lot of things that have to do with shuffling the cards manually, like, you know, sorting everything on the board like you know how to do, that just, like, feels different. I, I completely agree. Also, like, lean on a lot of, like, the reminders that Magic Online gives you, I think, way more than I should. Particularly with this amulet deck, I'm gonna have to get a physical copy of this and put a bunch of manual reps in, because I th- I'm sure that I'm gonna be making mistakes if I just, like, you know, show up at a tournament and be like, okay, this is the first time I'm playing this uh, in paper. Yeah. Even though, I like, I, I know all the lines, it's I'm sure I'm gonna, like, miss triggers or, you know, whatever other stuff. So I think that that kind of like applies like a lot with the Amulet deck for sure, but also a little bit for even just like drafting or, you know, playing standard or whatever. You just need to be able to get those physical reps in. So like tonight I'm going to Atomic Empire to play in a a physical draft, you know, even even though I've been jamming infinite drafts on Magic Online. So, you know, it'll be good to kind of get that, you know, get my hands on some cards a little bit there. Yeah, I, I think it's very important in limited formats too because there's so many different cards that you never played with or against in Paper Magic that, you know, you got to remember your Territorial Hammer Skull Trigger when you attack. You got to point it at a guy. Like, like these are little things that you don't have to do on Magic Online that you can't forget in real life. Right, for sure. Just as a, like, anecdote, like, the first modern deck that I built in Paper was Living End and... Now, shuffling up my Living End deck with my copies of cards, like, it kind of feels like like sliding into a warm bath. Like, there's no deck that I'm more comfortable just, like, shuffling up the cards and, and like, my opening hands, 
like look right to me because I've just played the deck a lot in in real life and there's there's something to that that I think is pretty important. Yeah, definitely. And you know, even just like, you know, looking at a hand, like on Magic Online it's all splayed out for you. You can see every card very clearly. But in paper, you know, you have to like shuffle them around a little bit to make sure that you understand, mm-hmm. you know, what all's going on in there. So, you know, yeah. you, you definitely don't want to miss anything because you just haven't played enough with paper cards. Gonna be doing some more testing there, looking into getting the a physical copy of my standard deck. Uh wanna get some physical copy physical reps in with that because yikes that math is going to be hard <laughs> so well it's all multiples of two so you know you're 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 gaining what you know whatever amount of life you're gaining off of anointer priests it's either one two four sixteen like i, I don't know if that actually makes it easier but there are only certain numbers that are going to be the right numbers <laughs> right right for sure so yeah probably not going to be able to mess that up like insanely but um you know still gotta still gotta take a minute to be able to do that yeah and honestly honestly like if you're really going off hard like call over a judge and say hey can you please help me keep track of this stuff and and that may may be the difference between getting it and it might slow you down having a judge there but it it (laughs) might be helpful um right yeah true i'm I'm also definitely worried about getting some slow play warnings because it's such a grindy match or a grindy deck that it's like it's gonna go to time and you got to do the math in your head before committing to the play, too. So yes, that's, right. that's where those slow play warnings are going to come from, if they do come. Uh, I guess we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm excited for yeah. for Nationals this weekend. I think it's going to be like a really fun split format tournament, no matter what. So Yeah, and it's always nice to have a sweet deck that you're excited about to play in a tournament. So that's good. Yes, yes, definitely always excited about that. Yeah, just like a, a small little closing anecdote. I think one of my favorite parts of Magic is actually part of like the deck building process and finding you know which decks fit well in metagame and i think that i've landed on something i'm pretty happy with so looking forward to being able to play that yeah this is a great spot to be in i'm totally jealous of you uh <laughs> I, all i get to play in this weekend is a sealed pptq so too bad but well you know you get to play sealed so there you go yeah sealed yeah i've been jamming some sealed online i've been learning a lot of stuff about the format that that i think you know, maybe we can have a good in-depth limited discussion after Nationals, and that, that might be good. I'd be down. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be playing a lot of limited. Cool. Hopefully I'll have some, some insightful things to say there. Yeah, perfect. But yeah, all right, I think that's all we got for today. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that was plenty to cover. Thanks to everybody for listening. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to check us out, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to try to be tweeting a little bit more from the Grindcast Twitter, which is at MTG underscore Grindcast. Uh, and you can also find Collins on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. Thank you for joining us. Uh, have a great week. We will see you later. See you next time.